Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, September the 11th, 2023. We're having a Monday morning kind of day, heavyweight kind of day, big issues, big problems. And big thinkers on the show. Earlier today, we uh, interviewed Ken Costa. He's a distinguished London-based but South African-born banker. He has a new book out called The $100 Trillion Wealth Transfer. It's about the handover of wealth from boomers to Gen Xers uh, in the context of the environment and the future of capitalism. What was interesting about my conversation with Costa is he sees technology... Uh, as a fix, he thinks that the Zuma generation, Gen Zers, are so adept with technology that it will make this handover of this massive wealth uh, more doable, and he's optimistic about the future. He doesn't make technology the heart of the issue. My guest today, uh, Simon Johnson, is also a very uh, well respected and much uh, experienced uh, economist. Uh, he teaches at MIT. Uh, and between 2007 and eight, he was the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. Uh, quite quite uh, impressive credentials there. Um, and he is the co-author. He's written uh, a number of books, including um, uh, uh, 13 Bankers, but he has a new book out now, Power and Progress, uh, that he co-authored with Darren uh, Asamoglu at MIT, his colleague. Uh, Power and Progress, Our 100-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. I think the book deals with economic inequalities, but rather than seeing technology as the solution, he perhaps sees it as the problem. Darren is, uh, not Darren, uh, Simon is joining us from Washington, D.C., is that fair, Simon, that the problem in terms of the profound inequalities of wealth in the world today are, at least in, in, in your opinion, uh, you and uh, Darren's, uh, the problem of technology and prosperity? Yes, yeah, so there's an element in which uh, digital technology, in particular over the past 40 years, has exacerbated inequality. So I think that statement is correct, Andrew. But much more broadly, we think technology, including generative AI, for example, can go either way. Technology can be helpful. It can lead you to more shared prosperity. And it has done at some episodes in the last uh, 150, 200 years. But it can also take you the other way. And that's been the experience of the past 40 years. And the worry is that generative AI will be more of the same digital transformation, which will exacerbate inequalities within countries like the U.S. It's not, though, a book, uh, Simon, about generative AI. It's a book more broadly about the role of technology uh in prosperity and equality that the subtitle of the book is our thousand year struggle over technology and prosperity so you go back to the middle ages what do the middle ages tell us what is what is the the hundred uh, the thousand year historical analysis here well so you're absolutely right andrew we're trying to take the long view and we're trying to look at all different kinds of technology that have developed um, and, and some of the ones that that failed to develop over the the past thousand years the middle ages show us that this area, this this time period that sometimes people call the Dark Ages, was actually quite creative. There were plenty of innovations in agriculture, in commerce, in, in, in buildings, for example. But very little of the benefits of that innovation went to ordinary people. Most of it was captured by a few people 
at the top, that would be the, the monarchy and, and the, the top clergy. They lived well and they built massive cathedrals, of course, to, to celebrate um, what, what they saw as what, what was important. So it's not that hard to find societies of past thousand years that have been innovative. It is much harder to find societies that have been able to turn innovation into shared prosperity. It has been done. It was done very well, actually, not too long ago, but we've a little bit lost, I think, the, the knack or the skill necessary for that. So that's something we'd like us to, uh, collectively as, as humans to, to find, find again. Let's go back to the Middle Ages. A couple of weeks ago, I was in Italy looking at some of those wonderful cathedrals that you talk about. Um, was it that simple, Simon, in your analysis of the Middle Ages? Did the aristocracy and the clergy combine to appropriate the wealth of the peasantry? and build these magnificent cathedrals and churches and works of art that reflected themselves? Is your analysis of history, in other words, a neo-Marxist one? <laughs> well, I'm not God sure about the God forbid, Simon. In America, not, these days. I know, right? I'm not sure about the neo-Marxist label. But, um, and I do think Italy, um, medieval Italy, or I think what, probably what you were admiring, of course, is Renaissance Italy, which was the beginning of, of a breakdown of some of that previous social structure. They were moving away from feudalism, by by the time of the Renaissance, certainly the 1300s, 1400s. Um, if you look at England in the 1100s, 1200s, that or France for that matter, those were places where there the were innovations, agriculture was improving, but the benefits were not shared. So they were a bit extreme, perhaps in terms of inequality. But look, Lincoln Cathedral was the largest building uh, in the world for several hundred years. Um, so they also celebrated their their standing in society and, and what they felt gave them power, which, of course, was their own particular view of their role on Earth and where they stood relative to the heavens. You grew up in Sheffield, so you're all too familiar with Lincoln Cathedral. Uh, some technologists have written books on cathedrals, suggesting that they symbolize the collective creativity, a, a kind of communitarian vitality. Uh, is there any truth in that, Simon? Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting point. And of course, they, they were um, achievements in terms of engineering. But so, of course, with the pyramids and you, you look at the pyramids and you say, well, perhaps this was a celebration of, of collective ingenuity on the part of the Egyptian people. But it seems, you know, when you have that extra couple of thousand years distance to be mostly a, a non-productive investment, you were building these mausoleums that didn't help raise future productivity, didn't help uh, share prosperity uh, with, with, uh, with, with most Egyptians. A and I think the cathedrals, honestly, are, are a, a, a large amount of that. If they built the cathedrals and other things, if they'd also improved the rivers, if they'd also found ways to lower transportation costs, if they found ways to build better housing, for goodness sake, uh, or grapple with public health um, issues in, in those days, or at least tried to, Andrew, I think uh, I would be more inclined to be favorable, but they didn't. They focused on um, building these monuments to basically their own glory. It's interesting that you see the pyramids. I know the, your book is only the thousand year struggle rather than the 3000 year struggle. But it's interesting you see the pyramids and the cathedrals as technology, but they're more than that, Simon, aren't they? They're a manifestation of political, cultural power, a sense of beauty, a sense of majesty. Uh, why is that technology? Well, I think technology, Andrew, is, is anything we do with tools, anything that we organize ourselves to do collectively. And if you want to go back in history, we do have some earlier history in the book. You can go back 30,000, 50,000 years and look at stone tools. Or my favorite technology is, of course, the, the human-dog relationship, which was really probably quite important to 
uh, early hunting uh, societies. So these are all technology. There are all ways that we use tools and all ways that we organize ourselves. I, I agree that the pyramids and, and the cathedrals are technology plus, I, I think what, what I heard you say was there's something uh, something representing social political power. Absolutely, that must be the case. And something, you know, harder to pin down, something um, beautiful, perhaps, something charming about them when we're seen in retrospect. I completely accept that. But I think when you, when you look at what societies build, I think a very fair question is, are they building for everyone? Are they building for tomorrow? Or are they building just for a few elite people who are celebrating their own wealth and demonstrating that in, in, in a pretty blatant way? I think that, that's, a, that's a fair question to ask. It is, and it's a question, actually, that, that we ask whenever we visit um, historical places with great histories, like, like Italy. I guess the question then, Simon, is, is technology a manifestation of political, cultural, social power? In other words, uh, is there something inevitable about the way in which technology works itself out? I, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Fred Turner, for example, the Stanford historian, uh, the Stanford University historian, who wrote a book from uh, Counterculture to Cyberspace that suggests that the digital revolution was rooted in the counterculture and the kind of technology that came out reflected those values, that culture. Is there any truth to that? How do we separate technology and power? Power is, of course, one of the words in, in your title. Well, I think technology and power are absolutely in intertwined, uh, Andrew, and, and it's extremely hard to, to separate that, including when you look, look back in, in history. I, I think, though, two points. One is nothing is inevitable. So you, you get the technology that's shaped by power, but but you can also depending on who has what kind of countervailing powers against the elite. You can push the technology in different directions. And the digital world that we live in, in now is a really interesting, slightly paradoxical and a little bit sad case, because you're absolutely right that a big chunk of the innovation, some of the chunk of the innovation, of course, came from the space program and the military, um, including investments in the internet. But there was a big chunk of, of thinking about software and programming and what people wanted computers to, computers to do that was very much countercultural. And we talk about this in the book and we talk about moments when you can argue or, or see the counterculture sort of fading and this mainstream corporate culture represented, for example, uh, by Microsoft in those early years, taking hold, profit comes to dominate and the counterculture recedes. But I think what, what we're arguing for, which is more investment in technology that actually helps people, is standing on the shoulders of all those uh, great people from the countercultural um, decades, actually, Andrew. We'd like technology to empower and enable everyone from all backgrounds and all skill levels to be more productive and to have more fulfilling lives, as opposed to what we got, which was actually much more of a hollowing out of the middle um, part of the income distribution in, in industrial societies like in the US and, and in Europe. That's not, I think, what the counterculture people were looking for. And so I think it's time to go back and examine those roots and think about what we can do differently going forward. Yeah. And as your fellow UK economist, Marianne Mazuchutu reminds us, a lot of the reality as opposed to the ideology of the digital revolution was rooted in state investment. Before we get to digital, I want to have a break in a few minutes, Simon. I want to focus in the second part of the show on the digital revolution. But let's talk about the industrial revolution. What are the, what are the, uh, the models of that and the warnings of the industrial revolution in the late 18th and 19th century in Europe? Uh, as I said, you're from Sheffield, so you're all too familiar with this world. Right. So the Industrial Revolution, you know, depending on how you want to time it, began sometime in the 1760s or 1780s, let's say, to be on the safe side. The evidence that we have, Andrew, is there was very little by way of sustained real wage increase for pretty much anyone 
until the 1840s, or some people would say the 1850s. Now, um, some entrepreneurs in the cotton industry did very well, for example. There were some ups and downs of wages in particular years. But over this period, decadal uh, uh, time period, real wages didn't rise. Living conditions got worse in, in the really crowded conditions of Manchester or, or Sheffield in the early 19th century. It's a pretty horrible place to live. Um, and, of course, people lost autonomy over their working lives because whereas they had previously worked... Um, a lot at home or agricultural land. Now they had to come into the factory to show up at a certain time. They had to do exactly what they were told. They had to go home at a certain time. So all that combination lasted, well, at least 50 years, maybe 70 years. And if I say to you or to any of the other audiences I talk to, look, generative AI is here. It's going to be transformative, but you'll have to wait 50 to 70 years to feel the benefits. I think one reaction, or at least the reaction I get is, Really? Haven't we learned anything over the past 200 years? Can't we speed up whatever that process is that turns new technology, innovation, new ways of doing things into social benefits? What would it take to, to shorten that, that time period and the lag of the benefits there? Simon, one of the other books on the, on the FT long list is by Brian Merchant, a book on the Luddites and what we can learn from them. What about the politics, the early politics? You, you talk about the late 18th, early 19th century. The Luddite revolt, was that, in, in your view, a healthy revolt? And what for you in, in political terms are, are, are the models of what happened in the Industrial Revolution? Of course, it generated, triggered enormous debate, both on the left and the right. In fact, it defined the, 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 the politics of modernity. Yes, it did. Absolutely. Uh, and and it, it defined the politics of the 19th century. The way I would think about it, Andrew, is this. There were several waves of Luddite um, machine breaking, that, that's the, the term that was, was applied. One significant one was against the new spinning machines that arrived in, in the 1760s, 1770s. But that one actually petered out pretty quickly because improvements in productivity in spinning of cotton yarn created a lot of opportunities for weaving cotton. So a lot of people moved from spinning into weaving. And actually 1780 to 1800 was known as the golden age for, for weavers. They could make quite a lot of money. However, once the power loom came to weaving, so in other words, once they started to mechanize um, weaving as well as spinning, pressure increased on the wages of weavers. And the evidence that we have, there were a lot of parliamentary inquiries in those early days. The evidence is that a lot of people stayed as weavers or tried to work as weavers, but their family income fell by half, then it fell by half again, then it fell by another 25%. And by the 1830s, weavers were very poor people. So they'd gone from being what some people call the aristocracy of the working class at the end of the 1700s to being quite a poor class of people in, in the 1830s. The, the anger, the, the confusion, the um, questioning of the effect of machines had very profound effects. It contributed to a push for political reform in the UK, which led to the 1832 Reform Act and a whole series of other parliamentary reforms. It also led, interestingly, to a big rethink by one of the most uh, serious, deepest um, Economist of the day, that's David Ricardo. In 1817 and mm. in 1819, he's on the record as saying, Hey, machines are great, bring it on, everyone will benefit. Right. And that was a lesson learned from the spinning revolution. By 1821, he changed his mind and he said, He put a new chapter in his textbook and he said, You know, I've had a chance to reconsider. And under some circumstances, machines can be helpful, but on other circumstances, it can really hurt a large number of working people. Right? And, and that um, Ricardo changing his mind, I think, was an, is an interesting illustration of the challenges that they face because this all this stuff, of course, was new. But I think it's also you know, what Ric Ricardo was a member of Parliament. Ricardo was very well aware of, of all of the popular resentment, and Ricardo was challenging exactly what you just alluded to, which is you know, un trying to understand how do we get this to go better for more people, get the productivity gains, 
turn that into higher standard of living? And how do we prevent having a you know, complete catastrophe for half a million people in terms of their living standards? Of course, Ricardo had a great deal of influence on Marx and Marx's ideas. What do you make of the conservative reaction, Simon, to this new technology, whether it was the nostalgic anti-machine ideology of poets like Wordsworth or true reactionaries like slave owners in the United States who were perhaps ambivalent about technology because it undermined the slave economy? Well, I, I would put those two groups into very different categories. Yes, there, there was there were plenty of people who felt that the Industrial Revolution was destroying some part of Britain. Uh, those people were not particularly powerful at the beginning of the 19th century. And, but they were and influential, them, weren't they? They spoke up a lot. Uh, certainly, they're, they're well read today. But no, I don't think they got in the way of the manufacturers coming out of Manchester. Uh, I think the political power of money in, in, in what had previously... Britain, of course, in the, in, as you know, in the 1700s was, was, a, was dominated by the notion that property and land, ownership of land, were, were the dominant values and the things that the political system had to protect. It was very easy for the business people to graft on top of that the idea that if you could make money and acquire land, among other things, you could join the de facto aristocracy or the ruling elite. So no, I, I think that the conservatives made a lot of noise, but were mostly co-opted. And Benjamin Disraeli, I think, would be the culmination of, of, of that phenomenon, very smart political operator. The cotton uh, plantation owners, I think, though, Andrew, are in a completely different category, because irrespective of what they may have said and whatever hand-waving Thomas Jefferson might have had about modernity, that the brutal fact of the matter is that the expansion of the English cotton industry, all of those jobs that were created, all of that profit that was made, from the 1790s on was made possible by what the economic textbooks delicately call the elasticity of supply of American cotton. What does elasticity of supply mean? It means that slaves were put to work actually for the first time on a large, a large scale in cotton plantations. Cotton plantations spread from the East Coast across the Deep South. Eli Whitney and, and other cotton gins were immensely helpful in that process. And the slave-owning cotton plantations, plantation owners, were a key driving force or facilitating force in the British Industrial Revolution when you see it through that light. And I think, honestly, that the, that version of technology, which, which was, of course, limited and specific to what they did with, with cotton, that was the base of their economic and political power up to the Civil War. I have seen no indications that cotton plantation as a business or the business of, of, of keeping slaves working in incredibly hard and harsh conditions their entire lives and absolutely debilitating in, in terms of how they were treated. I see no indication that system was crumbling prior to the U.S. Civil War, Andrew. So that they were a bastion of industrialization just as much as the industrial workers in Manchester and, and, and all the political reforms that they got. People living in the South America got nothing until the Civil War. And, and even after that, of course, Reconstruction went really ultimately quite badly for them. Yeah, um, I agree. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating conversation, although I'm not sure they're quite as separate as you suggest. I mean, certainly the, the slave owners of the South created an ideology of uh, nostalgia, uh, pre-industrial nostalgia to, to justify their system. We are talking, it's a fascinating conversation, with uh, Simon Johnson, uh, the co-author of Power and Progress, a major new book uh, that is in the long list for the FT Book of the Year, Business Book of the Year. I'm going to take a short break. Uh, I'm going to thank our sponsor, Liberties uh, Quarterly. And then I want to come back and I want to talk about the 20th century and, of course, the digital revolution with Simon uh, Johnson. Don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 30 seconds.
Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesquarterly.com. We are talking with Simon Johnson, the co-author of Power and Progress. Uh, Simon, yesterday I had the historian um, Diana Henriques on the show. She has a, a really interesting new book out, Taming the Street, a book about how FDR took on capitalism. What lessons in American terms? We've, talking, we, we've spoken um, exclusively on the U.K., what lessons can we learn in terms of harnessing the power of technology in political terms? Can we learn from the United States, both from uh, the turn of the 20th century and then, of course, in the 1930s? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very good question. It's something we spent quite a lot of time on in the book. The progressive era, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, which, of course, fed directly and indirectly into the 1930s and into Franklin Delano Roosevelt's um, uh, period in office. I, th- I think that was absolutely one in which countervailing powers were developed to offset the power of big business. So the count- what were those countervailing powers? They were trade unions. It was the regulatory power of the state, which really rose um, under the New Deal. And, and, and that created an offsetting system of power that, at least to some extent, constrained what owners of capital and what management could do. Now, there were plenty of people, there are plenty of people who today say, oh, that really wasn't good for business. But if you look at what happened in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, actually it was really good for business because not only did American companies do well, not only did their shareholders do well as those companies expanded and prospered, but so did the workers. And there was a lot of um, uh, social peace, let's say, as a result of the prosperity being um, much more evenly shared than it has been, had been previously in, in American history. What about the politics, though, of all this? Um, I'm rereading Rick Perlstein's Nixon Land and Reagan Land. There were enormous political reactions to the New Deal beginning in the 1960s and 70s. Is it possible to separate the politics and the economics here? Well, I think separating economics and politics is always a mistake, actually, Andrew. Uh, Look, you're absolutely right. There was a backlash. I don't mean separate. I mean disentangle them. I think we can disentangle them to, to some degree. And certainly there are there are histories that, 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 that we tell and other people tell about the relationships. If, if you mean, can we sort out the precise causation? I think that's difficult, although I would give in this instance more weight to the political reaction, because I think um, the people who turned against the New Deal or, or never bought into the New Deal spent a long time, many decades, organizing themselves in a different way with, with a different concept of how society should be organized this so-called free free market approach. And they looked for allies um, who would support that because selling people on free markets per se, not an easy thing to do in these post-war economy. But if you can find allies, for example, in the South who want to turn back the clock in some other ways on reforms, like civil liberties, for example, then you have the beginnings of an interesting coalition, which is, of course, what Richard Nixon demonstrated that's how he wrote to power and that's what's remained with us since that realignment of american politics so that the republicans are the south and some other places the democrats are the north and not all of the north that balance came out of that political realignment which was i think um 
motivated and organized in part, but not completely, by people who wanted to turn back uh, the clock on the New Deal. So we have this great tension in the history of the industrial age between technology and prosperity, at least according to you, Simon, uh, between New Dealers and the Nixon Reagan camps. And then, of course, we get to digital, the digital revolution, which begins, I don't know how you date it, the 80s or 90s with the Internet. Lots of promise especially in Silicon Valley, that that would change everything. And yet it doesn't seem to have changed very much. Now we have perhaps an even more uh, inegalitarian winner-take economy of Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Apple and everyone else. Is there some truth to that? I think that's a very fair uh, headline summary, actually, Andrew. Though clearly there was enormous promise at the beginning. I mean, promises were made. (laughs) And there was a counterculture element, which we already talked about. But what we got was a, a system in which a few companies are dominant, not just in economic terms, but also in terms of the visions that they create and how um, we think about technology and what we think can or should come next. I, I think we have fallen, uh, unfortunately, back into a period of extreme imbalance of economic and political power, which reflects and, and has helped to drive the increase in inequality. doesn't have to be that way. We could get different outcomes. There's still... Um, room for changes in policy and changes in corporate attitudes and changing the views of investors. But I fear that the path we're on, the default path, if you like, is one of continuing those trends from the 1980s. Is your argument in in the book, Power and Progress, that we need to essentially return to the state power of the 1930s, that history is repeating itself and we have these out-of-control corporations who are irresponsible and that we need the state to rein them in? I don't think you can ever return to any previous decade, let alone um, 70 or 80 80 years ago. Um, I think some forms of effective regulation, for example, over surveillance would be appropriate. I think better protection of privacy. I think we can can definitely see a political coalition beginning to emerge around that. Um, It is interesting, Andrew, when you go to discussions, as I do in Washington, about um, policy towards um, any of these innovations coming out of um, AI world, for example, somebody in the back of the room will often say <clears throat> China, like that, um, sometimes literally, uh, other times metaphorically. And, and of course, what that means is there is a fear in Washington that is fed and encouraged by people representing the industry that if you regulate technology and innovation, you will hand a commercial and maybe national security advantage to China, and nobody wants to go there. So I, I don't think we, we're certainly not about rebuilding the, the state of the 1930s or trying to go back to that. I think we're trying to find new new ways to tilt the technology to it so that it's more complementary to all humans, less about firing people, less about fairly mindless automation, much more about how do you boost the expertise and the skill level of everyone irrespective of educational background, because we think that's the best way that you're going to boost people's wages and raise their living standards over the long haul. Simon, a friend of mine, a VC who will remain nameless, read your book and loved, I think, the first half or the first 70 percent, but was very disappointed with your fixes, with your to-dos. Talk concretely about what you think needs to happen. Convince my VC friend that it's practical. Well, I, I would say I would say that and I've written a, you know quite a few uh, books and, and other papers any that aim to to change and shake up policy. It's it's not unusual for people to say, well, I don't know if that would work, and really is that the answer? And I do think the debate and pushback on that is is extremely extremely helpful. But what we're what we're talking about and what we're advancing today is a, a change in the tax system. Right now, we tax workers and hiring workers at a pretty high rate. We don't tax 
um, employing machines at anywhere at the same rate. So those, those should be equalized. That's one. Second, we think there should be safeguards, particularly on the, the use of monitoring and surveillance in the workplace. That is very much um, ripe for abuse. I think arguably we could see some abuses uh, today. Um, we think there should be a lot more investment in the kinds of technology that helps people of, as I said, all um, backgrounds, all educational backgrounds, helps them become productive. That's not the current focus of uh, most of the innovation is, is about automation. Um, I think we need to have a federal um, level expertise in AI. I know lots of AI smart people. They're wonderful people. Most of them work for Google and Microsoft or in those ecosystems right now. So you need to have, just like we have at the National Institutes of Health, you need to have some really smart medical scientific people who understand health, who don't work for the pharmaceutical companies. You need that in the tech sector. And the last thing I would recommend, Andrew, is looking at technology as it's developed and deciding whether and opining from the government level on whether those technologies can actually help people and, and build that human complementary dimension of technology. And if yes, recommending that for adoption in public schools and in a publicly funded healthcare and so on. But you need to be skeptical because there's going to be lots of claims and, and lots of ideas out there, people saying they've got solutions, and some of those are going to be illusory. So I think being very careful and skeptical uh, about, about what's proposed, but also encouraging it and putting money into it and, and, and celebrating when it happens. Who's putting money into what, though? Let's take the example of AI. And everybody knows, for better or worse, that AI is going to replace a lot of jobs. It might create others. Who knows at the moment? We've done this cycle before. We just talked about um, uh, the Luddites. Where is the money coming from, Simon? Where should it go and what should be required of these companies? Well, the, the money right now is mostly from the private sector because they're making good profits on this and they see the prospects of, of very large profits. So there is almost unlimited capital backing Microsoft and Google, and they have various ideas, of they and the companies working with them, about training the next generation models, which are going to be much bigger and presumably have stronger capabilities than what we've already seen. So that's the private capital. I think the question is whether there can be any sensible deployment of public capital. So the, the US government has invested in technologies over the years that have had some beneficial effects. But the question is, can we find the right opportunities? Can we find researchers to back? Are there um, ways in which that technology can be deployed in public education or in publicly funded healthcare, for example, addressing social needs, for example, Andrew, that are not the top priority of the profit-oriented um, How does this work? Let's use the example of Google. My, work, my wife works for Google, so I can tell her your advice. What, what exactly should happen? These are private companies. Are you suggesting that governments tax them more aggressively, or are you suggesting that governments tell the biz dev or the product people at Google, what kinds of products they need to invest in or sell? Well, no on the second one, because I think having the government micromanage companies never goes well. On the first one, I do think all of these companies, including the big uh, tech companies, should pay um, their corporate taxes. And we should. Yeah, I don't think anyone's going to debate that. I mean, are you right. in the Piketty camp when it comes to taxation? No, we're not. I don't think taxation at, at very high rates or, or going after capital and trying to um, tax capital that aggressively is is top or anywhere near the top of, of our agenda. I, sure, the, the imbalance of taxation of capital has become extreme. I think equalizing the the, the taxation of um, capital income and labor income is is a good practical way forward. Um, but th those are ideas that many other many other people have. Now, I think that the key thing that the government can do is fund breakthrough science and alternative paths for research and development that leads to new ideas. Um, 
that's what we've done well in the healthcare space. That's what we've done at some phases in the in the digital space way back, going back decades. Right now, that's not what the government does. Right now, it's private sector dominated, and you'll get what these companies want to want to provide us with, which is where they think the, the profits will be. You know, I think that's how the system works. The question is, can you have a counterbalance? Can the government find sensible avenues? And that's what we currently work on. And that's what we, those are the conversations that we're having around the country. I think the answer is yes, but I don't have a fully fledged investment agenda for you, but that's a, that's a natural part of the process at this stage. Are there constituencies, you're in DC, you live in DC, Simon, you teach in Cambridge. So you do that Excella corridor and you know that world very well. Is there a, a political constituency for this? Um, certainly Joe Biden seems to be increasingly more interested in China in some ways and in the China threat. The Donald Trump's changed our, our perceptions of that. Are there individuals in, in Washington, D.C.? The Commerce Secretary, for example, who's been on the show, the former go governor of Rhode Island. Um, are, are there new constituencies that are listening to you on this? There certainly are constituencies interested in investing in technology, in building more good jobs around the country. Uh, the Chips and Science Act um, had, I think, 64 senators uh, in support at the end, which is a remarkable amount of bipartisan consensus. And so there, there's an agenda there. There's, there's also, of course, a clean energy agenda that doesn't have bipartisan consensus, but it has a lot of money being deployed and, and a lot of follow investment by by the private sector. There are also people interested in appropriate safeguards around surveillance and monitoring, as I mentioned. I, I think perceptions of China, Andrew, were mostly changed by China, right? In the 1990s, the view in Washington was, if you bring China more fully into the international trading system, they may or may not become democratic, but at least they'll become more friendly or less troublesome to the world and less troublesome to the United States. I don't think many people feel that way anymore. And, and there is concern about um, industrial secrets leaking out to, to China from the commercial perspective, but also from a national security perspective. So I personally don't uh, like to encourage uh, a fear of China. I don't. I think that's unhealthy. And I think the investments we're talking about, we should make for ourselves, not for, uh, because of what China is doing. But there are people uh, in some parts of the political spectrum who would find um, the China card an e easy way to, to justify supporting some of the ideas that you and I are talking today. Well, what about someone like Gina Raimondo, who seems to me at least one of the more enlightened politicians in Washington, D.C.? I'd like to see her run for president, actually. Um, is there a constituency within the Democratic Party that is sensitive to the arguments you're making? Or has the party itself, is it so fragmented and, and weakened that, that, that the kind of messages you're putting forward doesn't have a natural constituency? No, oh, there's many people in the Democratic Party and, and some of the Republican Party who like the idea that you can focus on more good jobs. Actually, not many people resist that slogan. And, and more good jobs, one element of that would be public investment in new technology, trying to fund breakthrough research. And if you're doing that, then you should have a conversation about, OK, what exactly are we inventing? Who, what kind of jobs are we going to create? How do we know this isn't just going to more automation and therefore we lose more middle skill, more middle skill, middle income jobs, for example, out of the Midwest? That, that's a very healthy positive conversation that we can have. Uh, there are differences, but they're mostly Republican versus Democrat on how much they want the government to do anything. But if you're talking about um, investing in science and turning science into commercial applications, you can get a significant number of people on both sides of the aisle in support of that. It seems as if uh, the American job situation is becoming increasingly bifurcated. You have a, a new precariat, the disappearance of the middle class, 
And if anything, this technology is only going to undermine what is left of the middle class. Could you give me some concrete areas where you can see your fix creating real viable middle class jobs for the 21st century? Yeah, that, that is, that's exactly the fear. That's why we wrote the book, Andrew, to try and, and address that. And I, so I, I would go back to, to a historical episode we haven't talked about yet, which is when Henry Ford brought uh, car manufacturing onto the assembly line and when he brought electricity to the assembly line. So this is in the first two decades of the 20th century. So when Ford started out, there were about 40,000 people working in the Detroit car industry, making about 40,000 cars, actually. So a highly artisanal process. At the end of the 1920s, there were 400,000 people working in that industry, making about 3 million cars, talking about the core uh, industry in Detroit. So um, that was absolutely transformational. But what, what Ford did was replace a lot of people, right? So people were replaced by machines, and those machines were electrified, so they replaced even more machines. But he, he and the people around him and the, and the, the engineers who built that car industry, so as many people, they uh, created jobs upstream and downstream which had the following characteristic. These were jobs you could get with a variety of backgrounds, different skill levels. You didn't have to have a PhD. Not many people had a PhD. And you could acquire through on-the-job on the training a high level of skill and expertise. And that was a major reason why these people were paid decent money. So I think what we're looking for uh, right now, Andrew, is not to stop the deployment of generative AI, because honestly, I think that would be pretty hopeless. I think it needs to be done with some safeguards, as I said, around surveillance. But mostly what we want is to find those ancillary investments, to find those new avenues of activities for people. And, and this is not like a fallback job. You're going to go, you know, uh, more people need to go flip hamburgers. No, because there isn't a level of expertise and skill that leads to um, sustained high remuneration of those jobs. We need jobs around generative AI that are new jobs, new tasks, things that people haven't done before. And that's what I, and luckily a lot of other towns of people at MIT uh, are working on. Um, and so I think that's what we're pushing for. And we're pushing- well, Give me some examples of these kinds of jobs. Another of the long-listed books are Good Jobs by another economist, Zena Tone. Give me some examples of your kind of quote-unquote good jobs that can come out of the, the AI revolution, today's AI revolution. So as we were talking about a little before, I think education is absolutely ripe for a revolution, much more tailored education, education that's much more sensitive to uh, the different pace at which people learn. Healthcare could absolutely do with, with major transformations, different tasks uh, for some existing highly trained people who are pretty limited in what they can do because of the way in which things are, are, are licensed. But technology can open new doors there. And I think if we're talking about manufacturing, which is, I should say, uh, bringing generative AI to manufacturing is still pretty early days because a lot of manufacturing doesn't have the highly digitized big data environment that you need. But what we think we're going to see there is much more, many more jobs in design, many more jobs in marketing, many more jobs in um, the decentralized deployment of manufacturing around the country. I think it would be very hard pressed in 1910 to predict all the new jobs and kinds of jobs that Henry Ford's initiatives would have generated. But I think that's what we're trying to channel here. And that's what we're trying to encourage. And that's what we're trying to um, persuade people to open their minds to. Andrew. So, I mean, when it comes to medical, I could see a couple of scenarios. On the one hand, AI could create or compound a superstar medical infrastructure, a winner-take-all employment world where you have a tiny group of incredibly rich and powerful uh, doctors who, who essentially control the sector and create virtual representations of themselves. On the other hand, it could be used 
to perhaps empower a new class of nurse physicians, uh, turning democratizing medicine so that you you would undermine that superstar infrastructure. You and I both, I'm sure, agree that we would rather empower the the, the nurse physician than create this superstar uh, doctor world. H- how do you do that? Well, I think it's about the technology that you develop, and I think it's about what you put in people's hands and what you allow them to use, which is obviously going to be partly about licensing requirements. But if we look outside the U.S., I think, Andrew, it's going to be really compelling. Many places don't have anywhere near uh, the number of medical professionals that they need. Now, they don't all have the supportive technology. I, I understand that, like the diagnostics, uh, cheap diagnostic testing is something that's super important to develop as well. But al- allowing and enabling medical professionals to provide appropriately expert assistance and um, determination of what further treatment you need, I think that that may get traction in the United States. Would not surprise me if it gets more traction earlier elsewhere. It, if it's not in the United States, it's not going to get a big amount of investment from, from Big Pharma, right? Or, or from the medical device companies, because they pursue the US, that's 90% of their profits. So looking for public investments or publicly oriented investments or philanthropic investments that are publicly oriented in other countries to enable medical professionals to serve people, more people better, that's going to be a very appealing combination with this technology. Final question, Simon. You've been very patient. I appreciate all your time. Another of the books on the long list is by another guy from Britain, Mustafa Suleiman. He's a co-author. The Coming Wave, he was one of the founders of DeepMind. Technology, power, and 21st century's greatest dilemma. In some ways, I think he's on the same page as you. But he also um, wrote an interesting piece, which I'm sure you saw in Foreign Affairs with Ian Bremer, on bringing some of these big tech companies to the table in terms of power. What should and shouldn't we do with these tech companies that have the resources, the economic, and perhaps even the political power of many states? Should we be trying to harness them or should we be trying to use them? I mean, you bring up Ford, which of course was a powerful 20th century company, or there were powerful industrial companies in Britain in the 19th century, but they don't compare with a Google or a Microsoft or an Apple today, do they? Well, we have had some pretty important um, uh, barons of industry in the US historically. If you go back to the 19th century, Andrew Carnegie brings to mind. But I think I tend to agree with you, Andrew, that what we're seeing now from Google and Microsoft, and yes, we should add other people into the mix, a few other people, including uh, Apple, some people would say Facebook. I I think we've got a a level of um, influence over the culture, as well as an extent of political representation um, that is um, probably unprecedented. And I think that that's dangerous. I think letting them run the show is not a good idea. Whether you can control them, I would question. I think you need to have some counterbalance. You need to have some other investments. You need to have some other ideas and other things that you're doing with your with uh, federal money, trying to push the technology in a different direction because the, the, these big companies are going to be very oriented upon profit, very oriented upon, on stock price, very oriented on certain aspects of the U.S. market. And that's not the world, right? That's not the world. That's not all the things that we need, even in the United States. So we can and should do things that are different. I don't think this has to be confrontational. I don't think this has to be uh, difficult. I think there's some win-win possibilities here. But there are also plenty of risks uh, that this will not go well. I'm guessing, though, that your book would actually be welcomed 
in Silicon Valley, that many of the people working for the Facebooks and the Googles and the Apples and the Amazons of the world would actually agree with everything you're saying. Uh, we have some good personal relationships. Uh, nobody's actually made that statement to me. <laughs> and I don't have any numbers on, on the uh, how many people would, would feel that way. Um, but sure, I, I mean, we'd, we'd be happy to talk to them. We'd be happy to suggest alternative ways of, of moving, moving forward with technology development. Uh, honestly, I don't think that's the way the world works. I don't think the world is swayed by a couple of employees or even hundreds of employees here or there. I think there's a central vision for capitalism, a central vision for these technology com- that these technology companies have fostered for themselves and for what they want to build. And I think it would be unwise to let them run the entire show. Are you concerned, though, that, that you, your kind of argument, this might, kind of book might fall into the hands of reactionaries, of conservatives who would use it to bash technology in Silicon Valley? No. I mean, there are some people who've been bashing technology. I don't think they've made a great headway. I think the, the, it's the other problem I worry about, actually, Andrew, which is people have their iPhones, they have their laptops, they've got their Zooms. They're like, Simon, I use these things all the time. That's part of my social and personal fabric. What are you talking about? I think people not paying attention to the issue and people just saying, hey, bring me the next new thing and I'll take a look at it that's a little bit how we got the last 40 years, which, which have not been great. I think people trying to turn back the clock or people trying to say no to technology with, with very few exceptions on specific items don't get much traction, at least in modern American society and, and not actually in most places around the world either.